Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of That Dan Band Show is brought to you by the Captain U Recruiting Platform, powered by Stack Sports. Captain U is breaking into the band space to offer support to high school students who are looking to perform in band at the collegiate level. With over 10 years in the recruiting industry and over 3 million student profiles created over the years, Captain U has long been a leader in athlete advocacy and support. Now, it's time to provide that same support to band performers. Captain U creates a direct line of communication between musicians and college band directors. With the LinkedIn style profile, performers can put their best foot forward with searchable criteria like their position, academic info and test scores, audition videos, director recommendations, and potential majors. Performers can directly message college directors to learn about scholarship opportunities, a university's academic strengths, and ultimately place themselves at the right institution. If you are a high school band student looking to perform at the next level, go to captainu.com and create a free profile today. It takes less than five minutes and will save you time and money. And for a limited time, we're offering performers 50% off an upgraded profile by using the promo code TDBS21. That's right, 50% off an upgraded profile on captainu.com by using the code TDBS21 at checkout. Sign up on Captain U, gain exposure, and get recruited. Powered by Stack Sports. And we are rolling. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is That Dan Band Show. I'm your host, Dan Shack. If you didn't already know, great to see you. Great to meet you. Thank you for all the listeners out there, um, you know, giving us your time. I'm very excited for our guest today has a different background than my own, which is exactly why I wanted to ask this person on here because it's always interesting to get into the conversations with individuals who just have different experiences. So it is my pleasure to have Alana Wiesing on. How are we doing today? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm in Philly, so it's now winter all of a sudden. Uh, so <laughs> overnight we skipped an entire season and, uh, you're in Arizona, correct? I am. And we also happen to basically skip winter. So <laughs> perfect. So we're just basically, uh, on two different sides of the earth it, oh, yeah. it, you, you could consider. But, um, before we jump in, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your background and your training in the percussion world. Where are you coming from? How were you developed through this unknown sort of lack of framework world you just have to figure it out and then what are you doing these days yeah so my musical background is rooted in piano that was the first instrument that I learned to play and started taking lessons on um, did that for about two and a half years I think I started when I was about five or six uh, ironically enough quit piano because it started getting too hard and I didn't want to practice anymore. So <laughs> there's that. It's kind of funny now. But um, my parents really saw that I, I took well to it, that I really enjoyed music and wanted me to stick with it and encouraged me to pick a different instrument. And the reason I chose the drums was actually because they had a lot of classic rock playing in the house as I was growing up. And so I was listening particularly to a lot of Led Zeppelin. And to this day, John Bottom is still my all-time favorite drummer um, and was just amazed by what I heard and, and wanted to do that. And so my first percussion instrument was actually drum set. Mm -hmm. um, started taking lessons on drum set when I was about eight or so. Stuck with that for a handful of years and then I'm not sure how my mom found out about it, but she had heard about um, my city's youth orchestra program and encouraged me to audition because I wasn't really getting enough attention, encouragement, really just 
not feeling totally engaged in my school's band program and just Mm -hmm. wanted to find other outlets for me to play. And so I auditioned and got in when I was in sixth grade. And once I was in that program, I was encouraged to have an orchestral percussion teacher so that I could improve my performance on those instruments that I'd be playing in that context. And that's when I started studying with the principal percussionist of the Phoenix Symphony at the time. His name is Bill Mm. Monzer. Um, And side note, just really grateful that I can still call him a friend at this point. We still keep in touch very often. Um, Really grateful for my work with him. Um, Mm. And so at that point, I was balancing both for a little bit and Obviously, the orchestral lessons ended up winning over, studied with him through middle school and high school, um, ended up at Arizona State for the first two years of my undergrad. And then for my junior year, I transferred to Indiana University in Bloomington um, and was really compelled to study there because of John Tafoya. He, at the time, was coming out to Phoenix to Scottsdale to play in uh, a festival called Arizona Music Fest. And so when he was out here in the winters, he would come to ASU and give master classes. Mm-hmm. And so I had the opportunity to play for him and take some lessons with him. Uh, I think the first time I met him was when I was a student at Interlochen uh, back in 2010. He was the timpani presenter at the Institute that summer. And so through those experiences, I just knew that I really wanted to study with him. And so I finished my undergrad at IU. I ended up staying there and did my master's there as well. Um, Shortly after my master's, I ended up winning my first two regional orchestra jobs uh, with the Terre Haute Symphony Orchestra and the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic. So I stayed in Bloomington because it's fairly centrally located to both of those groups and actively freelanced and took auditions with Bloomington as my home base, Mm -hmm. um, which was a really busy and wonderful time. Actually, I was really grateful that basically right out of school, I had made connections and made good enough impressions with the players in the area that they were contacting me for gigs. And so I was subbing with a lot of major symphony orchestras right out of school and even when I was still in school. Um, And so that took up my time for those three years, but was still auditioning for my own full-time job. Um, And so that brings us to what I'm doing now, uh, which is my current position as principal timpani with the Tucson Symphony Orchestra in Arizona, back in my home state, which is so cool and so humbling. Um, and I won that audition back in 2019. Um, so this is my third season with the orchestra. And uh, starting in 2020, in the spring, I began my position as adjunct professor of percussion at the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. And COVID was certainly an interesting time for all of us. Um, but I actually kind of view it as a blessing in that way in regards to uh, my educational portfolio, just because with performing being essentially completely shut down in mm-hmm. the way that I've been so used to it over the years, I really got to shift all of my energy and all of my attention and focus to education and to teaching and realize that I really have a huge passion and interest in it. And it was also during COVID that I was contacted by uh, who are now dear friends uh, and colleagues of mine about working with the Network for Diversity in Concert Percussion, which is uh, an outstanding nonprofit organization that I now serve as president and chair for. Um, And we seek to be a resource and support system for underrepresented and underserved groups within the concert percussion community. And so I was really able to throw myself fully into both of those elements of my music making and my uh, my educational and sort of outreach type of work. Um, and so I'm actually really grateful for that time because I think if I was performing full time, I wouldn't have been able to 
laid the groundwork and the foundation that I had during this past year and a half or so. Um, and so at this point, thankfully the TSO is, is back. We're performing. Mm-hmm. Um, and my teaching and the, the network are also full steam ahead. Um, and it's an incredibly busy, but very fruitful time for me. And I'm just really, really excited and also really grateful just to continue to, to build from here. Wow. So many experiences in there. Um, I, I've got to think we probably have some, um, you know, common, uh, friends or a couple degrees away, you know, just from my experience in the Midwest and IU is such a hotbed. I know a lot of people who have gone through the music program, both graduate and undergraduate. So that's very cool. And where you've landed is unusual. This is not just an easy life to, to land in or to achieve. And, you know, people listening, it's like you hear this, the incremental steps in your narrative and then arriving as a principal percussionist today, principal timpanist rather. Um, I've got to think like question one is how many principal timpanists are there in America? How many jobs are even out there for people to win? Gosh, I mean, if we're talking major symphony orchestra, um, you know, any Ixom Ropa major groups, maybe 70, 80 in the country, somewhere in there. Um, and it, so it's, it's like tuba or harp, you know, there's, there's only one of us in, in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So when there is a vacancy, it's a pretty huge deal, you know, and, and people come out in droves for these auditions. That's a great segue to something I I wanted to ask you about in hearing about your background and your upbringing is about the performance and the pressure aspect of what we are talking about. So, you know, I'm 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 driven to almost go technical and start asking you about, you know, ear training versus technique and the way that you got to the point that you're at in terms of your proficiency as an individual player. But I think to zoom out slightly is I, I want to ask you about the way that you encounter both auditions and performances. Cause we're talking about large stages and there's these are the different mindsets, which is the big performance kind of attitude when you're on the stage, when you're with the orchestra, when you're in the ensemble, you're playing and you're live and you're very much like with the individuals. And there's always that aspect of flexibility where things are going to change because music is malleable. And that's what we love out of music is the expressive and flexible qualities about it. That being said, it requires a certain type of person to be able to step into that and and actually enjoy and thrive in that situation. And then, of course, I think a different type of mindset, but maybe relatedly or one off is that audition perspective where and I have this with students all the time where, you know, they kind of come into the, that individual audition and it's it's a little nervous and some of their like social cues maybe break down or they're not able to um, present themselves to the best of their ability because of nerves. And kind of within that is it tells you something about how they're going to deal maybe with some of those high pressure situations in the ensemble. So have you ever been strong at auditioning as an individual player? And then of course, like related is, do you thrive in these high pressure performance um, environments? Do you enjoy that high pressure? Wow. That is, there's a lot to unpack in that question. <laughs> I think, um, so, and it's a really good one. I think the first place where I could start is that I think there are sort of two separate but related mentalities one can bring to this. One is the mentality that people bring to the practice room where you spend so much time like repeating ad nauseum the same small chunks of music over and over and over again until you basically build up the quantity that equates to that level of confidence so that when you get to the audition, you can trust that because you've put in X amount of hours, Y amount of repetitions, theoretically one of them is going to be in that high level that you've achieved in the practice room. But I think where a lot of people get that disconnect is not giving themselves or not finding other ways to engage in those sort of quote high stakes 
performance situation. Mm -hmm. And so I think where a lot of people tend to suffer is in the mental um, because they're not giving themselves enough opportunities to make that pivot from the practice room, either to the audition or to the stage, having experiences performing in front of other people. Um, and in different environments, because even outside of a practice room, sonically, it's it's kind of a wake up call when you walk on stage, <laughs> sort of the sound that you're sort of hearing uh, resonate in the space. is oh, very yeah. different than a than a little like 10 by 10 cubicle. Um, and so I think there are quite a few ways to to make this manageable. I always engage in a mock audition process whenever I am in my audition preparation process, Mm -hmm. meaning I would say about two to three weeks out, I start asking people to come listen to me play. Mm. And I try and recreate that situation as accurate to the audition as possible. And so I'll try and get in a bigger space, whether that's a rehearsal hall or an actual performance hall or stage. Um, I'll try and get people sitting at a distance that I think is approximate to where they would actually be in said space listening to me. I have them select excerpts or pieces in a similar fashion to what they would in an audition. I do my very best from top to bottom to recreate that experience. Even the little details of me walking into the room with my stick bag, you know, setting up and comporting myself across either if it's timpani, you know, getting getting that space situated, or if it's a percussion audition, having my my sticks and my other little accessories ready to go set in a very specific way um, as I'm walking in the room and as I'm scoping things out. And then just trying to treat it as much like that situation as possible. And I think where a lot of people tend to lose their focus is just getting so caught up in the moment that they actually lose focus, if that makes sense. It does. Um, And sort of getting caught up in what I like to call a sort of practice mentality as they're performing. And so there has to be that mental fortitude that is developed and confidence that is developed through the preparation process so that when you do get to either the actual audition or performance or when you're doing these mock run-throughs of these auditions or performances, that you can keep going and that you can trust the work that has been put in in the practice room because I think most people tend to get themselves into a sort of snowball effect if they really hone in on analyzing what is happening in real time instead of just focusing purely on execution at that point. Because I think if you're too privy to those things about individual performance, it could really come back to bite you. Now, adjusting to things like the resonance of the hall or the responsiveness of instruments, volume, touch, things like that, absolutely, those should be consistent on-the-fly adjustments And that's why mock auditions are helpful, too, so that you get practice adjusting to different spaces, different instruments, etc. More often than not, we always bring our own mallets, sticks, beaters, etc. to have that consistency. Mm -hmm. But what's really unique about percussion and timpani auditions, too, is that we are more often than not performing on instruments that we have never touched before. Yeah. You know, they're usually the orchestra or the bands, the schools, you name it, instruments. And so there's also that sort of mental hurdle of, you know, getting over the fact that you just have to make do with what's there. Um, The way that I try to approach that is I like to think of it kind of as an equalizer because, Everyone has to deal with that hurdle. And so the best way to to deal with it is to try and seek out, because most most places, most organizations, orchestras, schools will let you know ahead of time what equipment is going to be present at the audition. And so what we can do is do our best to try and seek out 
equivalent or comparable gear wherever we are to practice on. And that sort of takes away a little bit of that foreign element when you when you get on stage and it's one less sort of mental barrier to, to break through. Right. But the best thing, just to sort of recap what what I've been saying is just trying to work on that pivot from a practice mentality to a performance one. And it was not an easy process for me when it comes to auditions. I think it really it really was a, a long winding road for me to get over. And I think for me, it was mostly mental because of the things that I just sort of outlined um, to, to develop that inner strength and confidence of, yes, I know I know this music. This is what I have to say. This is how I'm going to say it. Take it or leave it, you know, um, and not trying to think too hard about what you think the committee's going to want to hear or, you know, any other little things that could really mentally derail and translate into uh, a less than ideal performance. Um, but what I will say, and what I've always been proud of about myself is I've always somehow had that natural translation from preparation and practice to performance. Mm -hmm. I would say that in the context of the orchestra, I rarely make mistakes um, and can just really have that laser focus in the moment and just really enjoy what's happening on stage and just be in the moment. Um, and so trying to translate that sort of energy uh, to the audition process was a little bit of a struggle. And I think context helps in the sense that when you're actually performing with the orchestra, you can open your ears and you can have a sort of dialogue with your colleagues around you. And you also are being informed by what is being played around you and how you can contribute. Um, and so being on that stage by yourself can be really, really disorienting. Um, and trying to create that context, especially in percussion auditions, because, you know, the committee is trying to hear an entire symphony or an entire piece from a triangle, mm -hmm. you know? And so just really creating that sense of confidence and assuredness that this is how this part goes and you can create that atmosphere around it, particularly for non-pitch instruments, is is more difficult. Um, and so that sort of mental workaround was really interesting for me. But I think at this point, I'm at a I'm at a pretty good place with both. But the best advice that I have to give is to perform often and perform early, especially in taking auditions, because mm. you don't want to get to an audition and have that be the first time that you have a similar experience to that. Yeah, nailed it. I, so it's two sides to a coin. And I think you've expressed this really well. And it's, it's different than, I think, the conventional marching arts uh, approach. So, you know, for me, I, I came up, I had actually a similar background with you where a drum set was really like my thing. And then instead mm -hmm. of branching into more of an orchestral direction, I really, um, kind of staked out, you know, marching snare drum and ended up, you know, marching competitively all the way through the DCI level. And now I'm very lucky to, to teach and design at, at that level. Um, but it's, it's such a different path because the messaging out of the marching arts world is just like consistency, 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 practice like you perform. Um, and, and what you described at the early part of your response was you've got to practice in that like micro consistent way where your average ends ends up being of, of high quality. Um, you, you're not allowing yourself to be capable of making an error. That's like outside of a very thin margin, even one that's maybe decipherable by the, the eye or ear. Um, and, and that takes the repetition. It takes the work on the individual level. I think in the marching arts world, there's not much of a conversation of how you have to be, at once a person that is building consistency individually through repetition and thus you are capable of stepping into live 
decision making with flexibility because what you're eventually saying is saying i'm not stepping in the concert hall and doing exactly what i did when the metronome was on and i was by myself you are very much aware that the environment is changing the tempo is fluctuating the temperature of the room is going to affect the tuning the instrument you're playing on is going to affect the tuning your stick might break you might all of a sudden go flat over here and sharp over here and you're having to retune the drums. I mean, it's all about live response. So it's it's not just I need to be flexible and be like present in a performance. And that means I'm not working with the consistency up to that point. It's you have to build the consistency so you are able to arrive to those moments and sort of zoom out and have a perspective a little bit greater, a little less granular than just on your own. And I love what you're talking about in that individual audition where I see this all the time with students is one, it's, and you're going to love this. Like they don't even touch the drum. The drum is too high. They've got to lower it. And all of a sudden it like, or like the drum falls or like, (laughs) or like literally like falls over because all the marching hardware is like kind of not, not all of it is totally like engineered perfectly. So a drum will just fall and they can't recover. They haven't even touched the instrument. And that's definitely what you're talking about with having your sticks in an order in your bag in a way that you've like, you just know, like, these are the mallets for this piece. Then here are my concert snare sticks. Then I'm going to bring out my timpani mallets. And then I'm going to switch over to these beaters for this, like, those little decisions become big decisions when you're in those moments. They just go, whoop, they become, they become massive. So I, I feel like that is, we need a lot more of that in the marching world because that's the, the real professionalism embedded in your response is yes and both. It's, it's building the consistency on the individual level, then stepping into the context and being able to be a musician and, and flex with the ensemble. And I feel like that is needed because all that happens is music, live music specifically, is it ebbs and flows. And there's unpredictable things that pop up in the live performance. But to go back to the audition process, you know, for me, when I'm at Carolina Crown or wherever George Mason, I'm auditioning, we're, we're very much like in like educator mode, you know, trying to send students out knowing exactly what we want them to work on so that they can come back and we can see the improvement between auditions. Cause we, you know, we audition over three or four different sessions. You stepped into education now heavily and you've been educated to a very high level. So you have a perspective on this in terms of per, uh, the professional side of auditioning. Is this an educational endeavor? Is this cutthroat what does it feel like from the perspective of the performer to step in and have that committee watching you are they you know flaying you alive like what's the vibe like doing that Mm. i think i'll i'll answer this question in a cliff notes version and then sort of dive in i think at a certain point it can be an educational endeavor on behalf of the teacher sort of taking students through how to have their agency in this process. But I think the most interesting part of musicianship and developing as a player and a professional is one's own agency of themselves, meaning that that person has to want to put in the work, right? And so for me, it was interesting because I was always pretty internally self-motivated. And so I wanted to try and find ways of making sense of this process for myself, because there are some baseline steps and processes that do need to be taught and do, do need to be sort of adhered to throughout any sort of audition process. But I think it really comes down to how the individual can best make sense of and wants to traverse that process that they really feel comfortable with. And so if that work and that desire isn't present on an individual level, then it just becomes really difficult for the educator to meet them where they're at and to continue to push them. And so I think that's just an important point to put out there from Mm -hmm. the jump. Um, But yes, I think in the educational context, There are things about that process that should be taken care of from an educational perspective. 
Um, the current methodology in, in our side of the industry is the philosophy of, well, you should just take them and then you'll know how the process works. And then just as you take them, you'll get better at them. And I have kind of conflicting feelings on that approach because on the one hand, yes, I agree the experience of traveling to auditions and taking them and just experiencing that process firsthand is valuable. But I also think that given certain people's backgrounds, financial situations, other experiences, auditions just, I'll put it flatly, are expensive, right? And so these orchestras or these bands aren't really helping to contribute to any travel costs, any, you know, hotel or lodging costs, Mm -hmm. any, you know, food, and just any sort of element of the experience of staying in a place for a particular duration of time as the audition is being held, right? And so there's also, I think, a financial which translates to mental barrier for some people of, well, if I don't have the money or if I'm going to have to spend all of this money to go to wherever for this audition, then I better feel really good about my chances of winning. Yeah. Or I better not care if I don't win that I just spent all of this money to get there. Right. And that's a really difficult position to put people in right or it's it's a it's a consideration that is really difficult for people to to come to terms with and understandably so I mean there were several auditions throughout my undergrad and my master's and even when I was out of school that unfortunately I had to back out of because of financial considerations Mm -hmm. um and it's really unfortunate because those were auditions, I think, for the most part, that if I had taken them, I'm not so sure at that juncture I would have won, but felt that I at least could have advanced that or done well at. Um, and so my main mentality at this juncture is I'm only going to take an audition if I feel so strongly about the fact that I can go there and win. And that's a sort of other long game process, I think that can be better cultivated on the educational end of that mental fortitude and stamina. Um, and it's sort of this dialogue between one's own musical capabilities and agency over the material and that, that mental side in the preparation process. And this kind of cycles back to what you were saying about the consistency in the performance as well is that there, there are always these two lines that are sort of trying to meet each other. One being your best performance and the other being your most consistent performance. Mm-hmm. And the goal in the practice room and in performing is to try and get those two lines as close to each other and narrow the gap between the two yeah. as much as possible. So that way, if you happen to play a quote bad performance or your worst performance, that if it's still in that window of consistency, it's still a quote good performance in your eyes. And so it's about, you know, closing that gap between what you feel your personal worst and your personal best is. And then the consistency line that sort of lies somewhere in between those two and trying to get the consistency and the worst performance line higher in relation to the best performance line. Obviously, the best performance line is going to continue to push as well. And so they're always kind of trying to meet each other somewhere. But that window closing, I think, is is really important. And I think that can translate to the mental fortitude and the confidence. But I think that that side of things is criminally under addressed um, in, in, in that, in our industry. Um, And so I think that in order to do so, it requires 
a good knowledge of the student and how they learn, how they respond to external stimuli and, and factors um, and working with it, that the student on that individual basis to best address that issue. Because I, I think it's really difficult to have a catch-all solution to that process because I know for sure that I responded to praise and criticism seemingly a little bit differently than, than my peers did. Sure. Um, and, and everyone's going to be really different. You know, when I was, when I was younger, I used to take cr uh, constructive criticism fairly personally. Like I was like very upset <laughs> by it. Um, it was just like, oh, they don't like my music making. They must not yeah. like me. Like, what am I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. Like, I can't believe that I made, and I would be really hard on myself too, you know? And so compound that with, just hearing the criticism, it was kind of like a double dagger to the heart. Um, and so it took a long time for me to get to a place where I could separate, you know, my own feelings and my own emotional reactions to things uh, from the sort of ego that comes into the music making process and just realizing like, look, it's not about you personally. It's just about trying to make this music and the composer's intention and this sort of expressive notion, emotion of this music, trying to create that as best as possible, you know, and and just trying to separate oneself personally from that process. It's difficult to do. And I think that there should still be personal investment in music, you know, and personal connection to music. So I'm not saying that there should be a separation in terms of one's involvement or connection to music but I'm what, what I am trying to say is that in terms of the the improvement process in terms of that sort of fortitude there has to be a little bit more separation of self from that element of it um, but the emotional I still think we need to be like fully engaged and connected and find a way that we can relate to it or at least make sense of it uh, to translate what the what the intention of the piece and the character and emotion of the piece is. So it's kind of an interesting balance on on all fronts, how to get there, I think. But from an educational perspective, I think it has to start on an individual level and having educators be more privy and sensitive and willing to accommodate the needs of the individual student and sort of meet where they are on that level a little bit more that um, the, the pedagogy for the mental side of music making is kind of lacking and needs further, further development from really storied, really effective pedagogical methods that have been in use across different instruments or different facets of our industry. Um, but I definitely strongly believe that that is a good place to start as far as that is concerned. Are you looking for a high quality apparel made exclusively for the marching arts? That Dan Band Show is brought to you by Lot Riot Apparel. Lot Riot was founded by a drum corps alumni with a mission to create the premier apparel brand in the marching arts. And he definitely accomplished that goal. There's no other brand out there like Lot Riot. No matter what band event you go to, you will see Lot Riot clothing being worn by members, fans, and instructors alike. It is literally everywhere. Lot Riot is the brand that bonds the marching arts community together. They have a passion for band and have a real stake in their customers and the activity. With Lot Riot, you're part of a greater whole, a group of friends, a community. I love Lot Riot because they draw on a minimalistic streetwear aesthetic and use high quality materials to create cool, comfortable clothing. Their brand fits my personal style super well, which is why I am proud to have Lot Riot as a personal sponsor, as well as a sponsor of this podcast. Lot Riot is currently offering listeners of That Dan Band Show 15% off all purchases on LotRiot.com. Simply go to LotRiot.com and use the code DANBAND, one word, at checkout, and you will receive 15% off everything you buy. But that's not all. Listeners of the podcast who use the code DANBAND will also receive an exclusive Lot Riot That Dan Band Show pin and sticker pack for free. 
So go to lotriot.com right now to get 15% off your order and a free sticker and pin pack using the code DANBAND at checkout. See you in the lot. I love how much you are demonstrating the way that percussion can train one's critical thinking. I feel like that is mm. a, a major nucleus of of what you're saying. And that, to me, that, that that phrase, critical thinking, is that that idea of holding two ideas in your head that feel like they're opposite, and you believe them both equally. I I hear that a lot in a, in much of what you're talking about. And something that I wanted to go back to is, is about the work you're doing with the the network for diversity and concert percussion. Mm. Um, cause I've been hearing just different things that are happening in the professional percussion world about, you know, blind auditions versus not blind auditions. And it's very complicated. I don't have a fully formed opinion or, or any hot take on that, honestly. Um, but what I am interested in is this idea. And I've, I've felt this as a teacher and I've, I've been teaching for, I mean, more than 10 years now, even as like a younger person. And I, I honestly feel like um, they're like it's it's almost as if these we, we see some of these organizations, whether it be a symphony orchestra, whether it be a marching arts organization, or even a college program, and in certain ways, like we see them and they're they they lack certain resources. I think many people who have been on that inside of an org, it's like they need certain resources, whether it's financial, whether it's on a personnel level. I, I feel like that is something I see out there. You know, when I when I look at marching arts, it's like we're criminally under-resourced in various ways that don't allow us to service our students to the extent that we really should. And like, I'm not trained in, in certain fields and certain ideas, even as a, a professional percussionist, you're trained in this way. And as you know, as you get to graduate school, the thing you focus on becomes like this big. So mm-hmm. kind of my question and what I'm, I guess, trying to articulate is through this work you're doing with the Network for Diversity and Concert Percussion, through your experience, it's like, how can we equip individuals on the receiving end of an audition or on the receiving end of um, a student? How do we provide them with what they need? Because there are students that are clearly underrepresented, that are marginalized and that aren't being given the opportunities that others are based on their identity category, whether it be race, gender, class is a big one, sex is a big one. So I just, for me, it's about actionable items. And it's like, how can we equip the, you know, uh, the idiom or the, the paradigm with the tools to make change? Mm. Yeah, this is also a, a really excellent and, and very deep dive question. I think the answer I'll start with is fostering a culture of belonging Mm -hmm. is really where it has to start, right? Because if people don't feel that they are welcomed in a space, if people don't see some parts of themselves in a space, then they will not feel comfortable or safe in that space. Um, And that can be a deterrent for some people to even consider entering that space. It becomes an, an act of bravery or courage then at that point, because uh. the, the subconscious logic there is that they are walking into an uncertain situation. Right. Um, and that was certainly a way that I felt for a lot of my training was for me, I knew that my love of music and my desire to achieve my goals outweighed the potential lack of support or lack of understanding that I realized might meet me in those spaces because I was predominantly surrounded by white men. And I love white men, you know, all white men helped me train me to get me to where I am today, Right. you know? And so I'm incredibly grateful for the support and the knowledge that that I received. But in doing so, you know, I didn't see myself in in any of the spaces really that that I was in. Yeah. And so there would be, you know, cliques that would sort of form of friends and colleagues in that way. Um, And 
it was interesting for me because I, I didn't really belong on a few different fronts, you know, um, as, as a woman in the industry or as a person of color in the industry, you know, um, as far as I'm concerned, I think I'm, I'm the only African-American female principal timpanist in the country, which is something that I, I feel very conflicted about. I'm very right. proud of the fact that I was able to achieve that, but I'm also very sad that I'm sort of standing on my own little hill, totally. you know, and, and that's the whole point of the network. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a space where people can feel seen and valued and understood and appreciated because they will be in a space with others who have similar backgrounds, similar experiences, and can really open up to and connect with each other. Um, and so I think the best way that we can at least start to address this on a more holistic level is by adjusting the way we view the culture and adjusting the ways that even even if those who have similar backgrounds and experiences are not present in a current organization, activity, etc., at least creating the culture at where they feel comfortable expressing themselves, being themselves, um, because I didn't necessarily have that. And I know <clears throat> countless others who, who did, who also felt the same way as they were going through their respective programs. Um, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I absolutely loved and cherished my musical experiences and my training. It really, hugely got me to where I am today. Um, but on a personal level, there were several different areas in, in many different points of my development as a musician where I just did not feel understood at right. all or seen at all. Um, and it was just sort of a case of like, we don't even know what to do because I, it was sort of a, a, a dark horse situation with me coming through a program, you know, or any respective program. Um, but the best teachers and mentors that I had, you know, never, it never really phased them, you know, and I think not othering me was also a helpful strategy, you know, where they just treated me like I, was it was anyone you know it it wasn't a matter of you know this person has x y and z identities it should necessarily be a concentrated effort to treat them any differently Mm -hmm. um on those accounts um you know on an interpersonal level i think just being treated and like i was saying creating that culture where everyone just feels like they belong is really really helpful On the flip side of that coin, though, I think back to sort of what I was saying about the mental side of a student's development and an audition taking. I think this is also a context where an awareness of that particular student's background and experience is incredibly beneficial. And it doesn't necessarily require relatability but it does require a great deal of empathy um, and a willingness to learn and a willingness to understand. Um, And that's not even just on the, on behalf of the educator to the student, but it's a two way street, you know, any, any working relationship like that, the student also has to, you know, be willing to be vulnerable in that way. But I think what I'm also trying to say is that, can be a difficult act mm-hmm. to do in, in spaces where they have traditionally either not been welcomed either overtly or subconsciously have felt that way. Um, and so creating that culture, I think, is incredibly beneficial. Um, and that's why I'm so passionate about the work that the network is doing, because on on a smaller scale and in, in our way, we're going to continue to grow it in time. You know, we're we're creating that culture and we're doing our best to understand 
and get to know our students on an individual level, what their individual needs are, both musically and in terms of mentorship um, interpersonally, because developing, again, that sense of confidence and that agency does translate because music is so inherently personal and the connections that we make in this industry I always I was always intrigued by and still intrigued by this this notion that our mentors and our teachers eventually become our colleagues right. and so another part of it too I think that would help to contribute to the culture of being welcomed and feeling like they belong is understanding that dynamic and understanding that as our students get older and they start working alongside us in the industry, you know, that there's not this sort of power dynamic or imbalance there, that there's that respect and that understanding. Um, and not to say that there shouldn't be a respect for, <laughs> for those who have instructed you. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. That should not go away. But just this notion that there's a sort of holier than thou complex um, has always kind of bothered me a little bit in the industry. And so I think, I think on that level too, just being a good human being, just leveling with students on a compassionate and just general baseline interpersonal level, I think will also go a really long way um, into breaking down more of those interpersonal barriers that also exist. Um, and so, yeah, it ultimately comes down to being welcoming and creating a culture of feeling that everyone can have their place and be valued and appreciated and ultimately belong in it. I think an educator's ability to show their own flaws is such an important thing. I remember starting out teaching, you know, I did the the age out thing with drum corps and immediately you start teaching and you feel like as a student, when you see an educator, at least as of, you know, maybe this generation of students, but you, what you're seeing is like, Oh, this person knows everything. And this person has the answer to everything. And it almost like you get the interp, you get the sense, you interpret that that person like is without, flaw and i remember mm-hmm. like being in like high school and stuff and like finding out about like all the weird interpersonal stuff going on between my like high school teachers and being like oh my god this is weird like you know people getting divorced and having you know affairs and this it was like all this drama like with my like teachers and you're like so they're people outside of this this is like one thing they do mm-hmm. and i've i've felt like as i've gotten older as a teacher i have gotten i've i've cultivated much better relationships with my students across the board when I can just kind of be authentic in that I am not perfect and I will slip up and say something dumb or say the wrong, you know, letter of music or, you know, interpret this rhythm wrong. Like I'm flawed too. And I feel like that is a a human quality needed from an educator, from a leader, um, anyone that is in a position of power and influence. And and that's really a lot of us. That's anyone that, you know, anyone you talk to, you're going to influence that person. Um, and I feel like that, that, um, vulnerability is important as a teacher is that you're not trying to be a robot. And I, I remember kind of breaking that down and just feeling the positive effects of that in the outcome of, of my teaching. Um, you know, related to what you're talking about, at least in the drum course space, there's just barriers everywhere. There's mm-hmm. barriers all over the place. And it's hard because I think we live in this situation we live in this moment whatever you want to call it where it's so symptom level it's like all the symptoms up here and it's all the like the reposting memes and it's it's the stories and it's social media and it's kind of like that's the level of activism that people are engaging with um where it's just pointing out things that are are kind of wrong on the symptomatic present level and i feel like what really needs to be happening is is finding out root causes for why these barriers exist so we can actually get to the issue and we could sip the cancer out rather than just like removing like the thing that we see out on the outside. Um, because that's the easy thing to do is surface level, but getting to the root of it is hard and it, it requires some of that like personal archaeological digging and introspection that it's not very comfortable, right? Especially for, for people that are at those cross sections of let's say privilege, right? Whether they know it or not, doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, 
So you look at drum corps and there's, there's barriers built into it, you know, to a rot, like you nailed it. Like auditions are expensive. You have to fly to a different state in most cases. Um, a lot of people can't afford flights. You have to pay a registration fee. Right. And you have to like pay just to like get there. Uh, and the flip side of that, that a lot of the staffs are being underpaid, at least in our world. We're not really paid fairly because it's a nonprofit org. We're not like generating massive incomes. There's not like large marketing and promotional partnerships in, in the music space in the way there are, let's say, in athletics. So it's like it's this like weird thing because like we want to pay the staff more, but the students are already overpaying. It's creating a major barrier, which is at the first step would be a socioeconomic barrier. And the reality is that trickles down into different barriers, including things like race, for example, or even um, geography, for example. And that's all tied up. It's not like I can parse this versus this or this. It's like we all have intersectional identities, right? So um, there's just barriers all over the place. Um, you know, there's such an absence of, of, of women in marching percussion. And there's so many different reasons why. And, you know, I'm at the point where I'm at this like high competitive level and people are like, why doesn't DCI like take more women? You need more women in your drum line. I'm like, I want that. Only two women show up on average every year. How can I take more than one or two of them when you already know how hard is it to even land the gig in the first place? It's very difficult and it requires such a combination of experiences and preparation and all these things that you've reflected on. So um, to kind of, you know, sum it up, like, what are the barriers? What are the major barriers that you see? If you could like pinpoint one or two, you're like, these are the things that we need to work through in order to put the orchestral and professional percussion world in a better place on a better route. Like what are those barriers? And like, from your perspective, how do we kind of get through that um, altogether and in a way that we feel like is, is possible? Mm. So on a percussion specific level, I think a huge barrier and consideration for us is accessibility. Um, most percussionists, until they win a job, end up staying in school or whether it's, you know, continuing on degrees, bachelor's, master's, doctorate, or staying on to do some sort of, you know, performance diploma or performance yeah. certificate type of program purely because it's so expensive to acquire all of the gear that is required and asked for performance on an audition. Right. Um, And so purely from that standpoint, it makes sense to, to, to stay in school just so that you have access to the gear. Um, But that, that is a huge problem. And that is also, again, another financial barrier for a lot of people. And you know, like we, we acquire these things over the course of our careers and yep. we continue to collect and acquire over the course of our careers. Um, but it's a process, you know, $50 here, couple hundred dollars here, couple thousand dollars there, another hundred dollars here, you know, yep. just every few months or so, every year or so, you know, to get the things that we want and need. Um, to be able to execute our musical vision, right? Um, and just have access to the instruments or own the instruments in general. And it took me a literal decade <laughs> to 15 years yeah. at least to to get to a place where I feel good about my current mallet and instrument collection. Um, and it doesn't happen overnight. And I think with some people, there's that overwhelming notion of I've got to have everything now, or I don't know what I'm going to do when I graduate. What can I do? Um, and so I think one of the biggest goals of the network is to improve that access, um, be able to raise the funds required so that we can help students acquire the mallets and sticks and beaters that they need or fill the gaps in their existing collections, be able to network them with individuals in their area that have instruments that they need or practice spaces where they can go or they can have instruments on loan in their home mm-hmm. so that they can be able to practice appropriately if they're not currently enrolled in a program that has those spaces or those uh, pieces of equipment for them. Um, and then just having the funds to be able to disperse and allocate those things appropriately. Right. That's, that's, a, that's a huge step is just having that access 
And it was certainly something that I had to to pace and manage uh, during the years that I was freelancing. It was very difficult. I could rarely get on a set of timpani during those years, you know. Um, and and when I did, you you better believe that I was making the most of that time when I could get in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's step one is is improving accessibility. Yeah. Um, on a holistic level. I think the best thing that we can do is start that culture of welcoming and belonging that I was discussing before, encouraging that and being cognizant of that at younger ages. Mm -hmm. I really strongly believe that the stereotypes that sort of run rampant in our industry are cultivated and perpetuated at much younger ages than what we would like to believe. Right. And so at the, you know, elementary band level, you know, when kids are are being asked to think about and choose what instrument they they want to play through their program, you know, you're talking about a lack of women's presence in the marching arts. There's still a pretty huge uh, lack of women presence in the concert percussion community as well at least at the professional level. Yeah. And so the the questions are the same. You know, why aren't there more women in orchestras? You know, why aren't there more people of color in orchestras? Well, <laughs> it's because that culture of belonging and welcoming isn't being fostered at younger ages. You know, those students from underrepresented and underserved communities often don't have music programs in their schools at all. Yeah. And so how do we spread the word about, you know, their potential involvement in music if those resources aren't even being supported at that level where there isn't even a program. And when there is a program, it's still this perpetuated culture of, you know, girls should play flute and boys should play drums. Right. And and if all of the boys go and want to play the drums, but there's a girl there that is also really interested in playing the drums, but she's not being welcomed and she's not um, being encouraged by either her peers and her friends or her band director, then that is an early and very solid deterrent for, for future development and future potential encouragement to stay in, in the field. Right. And then there are the barriers along the way of, well, you know, you know, maybe we should just stick her on a mallet percussion instrument or have her play triangle or have her, play, you know, there's these sort of negative instrument associations that can occur within it. Even if a girl is given the opportunity to play in a percussion section and band, they're, they're not being given snare drum parts or cymbal parts or timpani parts. Um, and that can be harmful as well, you know, making instrument, you know, stereotypes between masculine and feminine, so to speak, totally. you know. And so I feel like all of these barriers start to emerge much earlier than we're willing to acknowledge and working harder at earlier stages to try and dismantle those barriers um, and be encouraging and being welcoming at those earlier stages, because by the time you get to high school and, you know, you're starting to look into collegiate level programs, by that point, I'm not saying that it's too late in in any respect at all. But what I am saying is that by that point in a student's education, getting through high school, starting to apply for programs to study at the collegiate level they're already going to be behind in their studies several months, if not several years um, to their male counterparts. And so it, it makes it really difficult. Um, and this isn't just women. This is any underrepresented, any underserved community uh, within marching percussion, concert percussion, the percussion industry at large. Um, and so just trying to make it so that that culture of welcoming and belonging is present as early as possible um, and not to consciously or subconsciously 
discourage or discredit someone's goals or ambitions just because those underrepresented or underserved communities may not be as present, uh, it, that can be very harmful. And, and to try and avoid that um, and create that culture in the future can only be helpful moving forward if we want to improve you know, debt diversity, equity, and inclusion across all facets of the industry. Absolutely. I think as educators, as leaders, whether it's an audition committee, whether it's a conductor, it's like your job is not just the job. And 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 that might be a new concept. It certainly was something I had to sort of like awaken to, right? It's like, yes, you have your job that is like these like bullet points on paper, but it doesn't mean that you get to like ignore the realities of like everything around that. And I feel like that's really a part of what you're talking about is like even in a competitive audition, there's a place for empathy. There's a place for understanding. Um, there's a place for forgiveness. Like I think that is that's different. You know, like you you look at sort of this this really interesting and certainly polarized reaction like Simone Biles, I think is a great example. And just the way it's like, some people were just like, totally like, you know, we need to fully forgive everything that she is doing and that her inability to compete because of like this insanely traumatic background. And then you have like the flip side where it was like, she's a competitive gymnast at the highest level and there's no place for forgiveness. It's like, well, like, can't we have this again, this place where we can agree on the way to treat situations like that because they are going to come up and we live in a time with just more exposure to just everything and i think this idea of i don't know that like you're like this blank slate thing that you know auditioning someone's blank slate i mean it's not really where we're at anymore i think that's sort of an archaic notion of of the way that we would treat um at least in the, in the percussion world in a, in a competitive space like i just don't know that that's the reality anymore so um we are at time this has been honestly just amazing and it's so great to to connect with someone and it's just like this is why like i love having a platform where i can bring individuals on like yourself to speak from their perspective because it's just super enlightening and it's it's very very inspiring so alana i just want to Thank you for giving us your time today. And uh, where can people find you? Yeah. So first, I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me to come on. I really enjoyed getting the opportunity to meet you and speak with you. This was an incredible conversation. Uh, you're welcome to follow me on Instagram. My handle is at alana.weesing. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Also, please check out the Network for Diversity in Concert Percussion. Our website is percussiondiversitynetwork.org um, to check out all the wonderful things that we're doing there. Um, and also check out our websites for the Tucson Symphony Orchestra as well as the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music to keep up with any and all activities that are happening in those two wonderful spaces as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for stopping by and we'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.